0: I think first of all, I think we have to understand and realize that there was a promise made to our veterans uh, early on with the Hazelwood bill. Uh, later on, the legacy portion in 2009 was, was added to that. Uh, I think we've seen several studies. Uh, we, see, we saw the LBB report, we saw the Hobby Center report, and uh, there are some discrepancies in there. But I think that there was a rush this last legislative session to scale back on the promise uh, to veterans. So from my perspective, I think that, you know, we should make sure that the program stays as is, making sure that uh, veterans and their families uh, have access to that benefit. And we know that the uh, outcomes of those that are u- utilizing it, not only veterans, but the, the legacy portion, uh, the outcomes are great. Uh, folks are staying uh, in school and uh, staying, going to school in Texas, getting their degrees faster than the average student, uh, and, and, and contributing to our economy. So I think it's an important program that we keep intact.
1: Senator Campbell, in the Senate, how do you foresee the issue playing out, given the budget situation we're going into with lower oil prices and lower reserves mm-hmm. as a whole? Well, I first of all, I'm very thankful to be here, and, you know,
2: the discussions we're having today is good because we get to talk about things we can support and, and services and benefits we have for our veterans as well as get to listen to what our veterans want uh, to see from us specifically about Hazelwood you know Texas is very unique in offering that benefit to our veterans there will be discussions I believe coming up regarding because we we'll, you know I think we're going to have a much tighter budget but the Hazelwood Act is that that benefit is not only unique, but it's the strongest support we have to educate our veterans that are Texas veterans, and we were very happy to have the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeal agree that we have the right as a state to uh, vested interest to be able to define who is a Texas veteran, and we have the right to incentivize our Texas citizens to go into the military. Now saying that with our Hazelwood, it's it's a unique benefit that a lot of other states, just they just don't do it. So I believe, I agree, there's gonna be discussions about it. We are coming into a tight budget, which can, can make the discussions a little bit more concerning. But one thing we do wanna keep in mind is that we have to preserve the promise that we made for The dollars for our veterans who actually served to make sure those dollars are procured for education for them. Most certainly, you know, there's questions about legacy, and that's probably where most of the conversation will go on. I know Senator Uresti can add to it. I think we would all agree. That veteran issues are a bipartisan, we're all really on the same page. How do we get to the end to make sure that we support our veterans? Those that served, that's who we have an obligation to, and we're
1: indebted to them for our freedoms. They stood for us. We need to stand for them. Mm-hmm. And Senator Rusty, correct me if I'm wrong, but your son benefited from Hazelwood, correct?
3: Correct. I had a son who was a, a, a Marine, once a Marine, always a Marine. And, um, so he be- benefited from... From the hazelwood act um, as well but he was again a veteran but i had another son who was not um, who benefited from it that partially um, so i agree with a lot of what senator campbell has mentioned you know, first and foremost we have to take care of our veterans and and but of course what Representative blanco said as well a lot of veterans made decisions based on the legacy act and, and they either enlisted or Um, decided to stay an additional four years or maybe to do their whole 20 years for example but they made certain decisions um, that affected not only their career but their family based on the legacy portion of it and so although I understand we have to be able to afford the the the, uh, the initial part of it secondly we (coughs) did make a promise to them and we have to keep that and you know we're a great state we had additional funds last session knowing this was an issue we could have decided to preserve those funds or at least part uh, part of them um, for the next legislative session and for the issues that are going to come forward so i'm looking forward to um, a very robust conversation on the issue if you will Um, but it's going to take everybody to come to the table as when we talked about this the other day Um, i don't think it's if you want to reach a compromise, then you got to get everybody at the table. And I think we're going to need to do that, a better job this session on that issue.
1: What happened last session? I mean, there weren't really many compromises. And is that was that the uh, death of the bill, if you will, uh, Representative?
4: Well, I think a couple things happened. One is that there were some amendments that were being put on the bill that just from the standpoint of someone that's been in the military, it wasn't reasonable. And one of the unfortunate things, I think, about the legislature as a whole, it's not, it's not as bad in the Senate, congratulations, but the percentage of veterans in the House is quite low. So there's 150 members in the House, and I think something like 14 or 15 of us have served. That's very low in a state with a great military tradition. You have a much higher percentage in the Senate. Um, so there was one amendment, for example, that was put up that said you'd have to serve at least a year to get the benefits, 180 days today, but, none of, but it had to be time that was not in training. Well anyone that's been in knows you can easily do a year of training initially right off the bat in very hazardous duty you be jumping on airplanes firing tanks missiles rockets mm-hmm. messing around with hand grenades mm-hmm. it was dangerous stuff and um, it doesn't mean you're not in the service when you're in training you most certainly are so there are amendments like that that i just don't think were fully understood and also the debate occurred as i recall two days after memorial day where we were on the floor of the house giving out flags to families of deceased soldiers and um, we reminded our colleagues about that, mm-hmm. and the right. bill was pulled down. Yeah,
0: I think the timing was, was a was a key ingredient in 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 the in the debate, uh, and I think it it did uh, at least a lot of the the uh, discussion on the floor was that frustration that why
4: are we having this bill now? Uh, but one of the most important points is what. Representative Blanco brought up is that there's conflicting information about how much this really costs the universities. You know, one group will say it's one cost, another say it's another. And if you don't have trustworthy data, I think that's a big problem for folks like us that are trying to make decisions.
2: And I do think that's important for us to have good data collection. I think we do need to see the data on it because we're trying to make a decision on something where, you know, it's not really capped, it's in perpetuity. And we need, we do need to. I think to be fiscally responsible and make smart decisions, to be deliberative in
1: our decision,
2: we, we need to have good data. Right.
1: Speaking to the data, I mean the comptroller's office, you know, shows from '09 when the Legacy Act was put into place, uh, to now, it's uh, the cost has rose some 621 percent from 25 million to 178 million. So is it the breakdown, where where is the bad data that you feel like you need to improve upon that before making a decision or how to solve it?
0: I can take that. So one of the things that I take issue with the LBB is that uh, when they measured, uh, they measured up to uh, uh, 2025 at the peak of the legacy uh, portion that's gonna be used. Um, At that point, uh, according to the hobby study, you're gonna see a decrease. So there's essentially a bell curve that's occurring. Uh, while in the short term it's going to be a larger price tag, it's going to tail off at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, so my, you know, my biggest concern is that we, what, let's not go back and cut a program when we're, we're going to see a, an increase and then later on a decline. Mm-hmm. That only affects our veterans. It only affects this state's ability to recruit uh, 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 service members and servicemen and women into the, to the, the armed forces. As you all know, Texas is the second largest producer of service members uh, in this country. So I think that eventually uh, is going to affect readiness. And one of the questions that we asked one of the former uh, military recruiters is, if we cut this program, is it going to affect your ability to recruit uh, some of the uh, best warfighters fighters in the country? And the answer was yes. So uh, to the center's point, data is critical. We need to make sure that we get the story, story straight. And that was one of the arguments we had on the House floor, that uh, the LBB I was saying one thing, the universities weren't in line with some of the data that the LBB had. Uh, And then I've got my concerns with with some of the issues that the universities are bringing up as well based on on their budget. Mm -hmm.
1: Right. Being that we are on the upswing though, and if you don't do something this session, of course the cost is only going to go up looking at that bell curve. So what happens? I mean, again, this issue goes unresolved or unaddressed and we come to 2019. And it's even a bigger problem. So, so what happens if, if it's not addressed in some form or fashion this session? Anybody? <laughs> I mean, I, I think like
2: any issue, any thing that we're responsible for paying the tab, we've got to have the money. And if you're looking to cut something, we want to secure those who fought for us, secure their benefits. But even coming into this legislative session, we're all faced with how do we still bring in good policy, keeping it uh, fiscally responsible in order, because we are coming in with, what's predicted, a, a strong shortfall. And I think a question just thrown out there, well, what do you do? You have to, you do have to make some plans for it I don't know what the answer is. I, I do believe we'll have a robust discussion about it. But we will have to find dollars for what is predicted the price tag will be. And so, I mean, I, I think it's an unended answer, really, because we can't give you that. We don't know what the number is, what dollars we're going to be able to come in with, and what other programs. And just, you know, a side note. Our Medicaid dollars, health care dollars, are shooting up. With everybody moving into Texas, our education dollars are shooting up. Mm-hmm. So we want to make sure we can procure dollars for our, our veterans. But to answer your question, well, if it just keeps going up, you know, the answer is not we'll just keep paying. We've, we've got to figure out how.
4: Mm-hmm. Well, I, I would say that, you know, this is always intended to be an exemption, not an appropriation. So that's important to remember as well. And the other thing, you know, I heard in a recent hearing that people were saying, is it true or not true that you have to use your GI Bill benefits first? And there seemed to be some confusion on that, which surprised me, and it seemed to come from the universities. The fact is you have to use it first. Mm-hmm. And I would tell the universities, including the one where we're sitting here today, that if you think it's a problem and it's not being done, that's not on us, that's on their administration. Mm-hmm. And if you've got to use your GI Bill benefits first, set up a program. To make sure that people are eligible, are using their GI Bill benefits first. There are restrictions yes. on the program. It's only it's limited to 150 hours. It's only for certain things. Mm-hmm. On the legacy side, you can only have one child in at a time. So it's not like we haven't restricted some of it. And maybe there are some things you could do. Maybe you have a GPA requirement. There is. Maybe you know you could do other things like that that um, uh, you know have an impact on it. But. Uh, if they're not using the federal benefits first, the universities need to do a better job.
3: And, and to add what the representative just said, as far as the legacy portion of it, you know, one of the you know, issues that I had brought up last session was, and originally when we, when we worked on the legislation, was perhaps require some type of community service from the legacy recipient. So they're not just getting um, that uh, their, their tuition paid for, but require them to do something back whether it's working with the VFWs, for example, or the VA hospital, but some sort of community service, um, so they have some buy-in as well.
2: Mm-hmm. And that's a, great, that's a great
0: proposal. One, one of the things uh, that, that there isn't much discussion about is that there's a fund uh, with several hundred millions of dollars in there that uh, the, the legislature has appropriated into that has not been spent. Uh, it, or I think it's to the tune of $240 million at this point. Yeah. Uh, there's been two allocations to the universities. One, uh, one was for 11 million and the other was for an additional 11 million. So th- there is funding there currently. Uh, not to mention we've got $10 billion in the rainy day fund. Um, and I know a lot of folks don't want to talk about spending that, but um, we're talking, uh, the, the important thing is this, we're talking about people. We're not talking about dollars. Uh, we are talking about dollars, but we have to remember that. Uh, what the GI Bill did for our World War II veterans, and what the outcomes were. Twenty years later, we had a NASA program that, that you know, we were sending people to outer space. Uh, we had a, a very strong defense uh, uh, program. A lot of those folks left the infantry. You were, you know, your first uh, first generation Americans that had no other opportunity to go to school. Uh, the GI Bill did that, and that's what the Hazelwood is doing for many Texans. Um, so. We have a fund, we have the rainy day fund, Uh, we have a legislature that can fund it, but we also have universities that are spending a lot of money and aren't being truthful uh, when you're talking about how much it's costing. Uh, I take issue with some of the universities that are saying that uh, other students are having to cover the cost for veterans. When you look at a classroom like this and and you have several students that audit a course or you have several students uh, that are in there that you know it would, and one percent of the classroom is a veteran how much is that really uh, going, cutting into the budget of of universities i think universities mm-hmm. are looking at this as a loss yes a, instead of a cost but they're kind of, i think they're in many in many respects are being untruthful to the legislature and saying it's it's unsustainable we can't afford
4: this mm-hmm. i agree
1: well i know the the controller put out a report recently just looking at the Economic activity that the military generates here in Texas, and it's somewhat mm-hmm. 130 billion, almost oh. 150 billion,
2: right? Uh, yeah. When you look at the direct and indirect effects of our of the military in Texas. So
1: does that, and then a lot of that is you know personal income. I know uh, Senator Campbell and Representative Blanco, you guys have focused uh, some of your legislation efforts on uh, veterans hiring policies. <laughs> Why is that so important? And then talk a little bit about what you did last session to further that, Senator. Sure.
2: I'm pleased with what we've worked at as a group to do for um, hiring with, for our veterans. It really, when you look at the bigger picture, when our military leave active duty and transition into civilian life, there needs to be some help there. <coughs> our veterans that are just they, out there that have not just left active duty but are within you know Texas, not newer transitioning, if you will looking for a job, need help. So because of that, there were numerous things that we did. One is a college credit for heroes. Coming out of the service, getting credit for experience you've already got while you were in the service helps you, if you choose to go to college, matriculate quicker and cheaper because um, you're giving actual college hour credit where you have experience already. We also made it so that if a veteran wants a 100% owned veteran business, they got a tax deferral, uh, not a deferral, exemption, franchise tax for five years, 100% veteran-owned business to try to help them jumpstart a business. For those that come out of the military that may have uh, some occupational specialties, We've made it so that as you come out of the military, we waive the initial fee for any occupational fees, tests you have to take, attorneys even, you know, come out and the initial fees you have to pay, waive those the first time. Again, to help, you know, foot a little bit of the cost to reduce the barrier for a veteran to get a job. I think it's very important that our veterans our active military, when they come out have a role they can move into and actually feel that they've got some help for education or a career opportunity. Mm-hmm. And a lot of our agencies also, Texas Workforce Commission, the TBC, work together with um, Texas Veteran Leadership with the TBC Entrepreneurship Program, I mean that was Texas Workforce Commission, Entrepreneurship. Uh, by TBC employment uh, services to help with resumes. How do you dress?
1: Uh, a lot of oh, it's building that transition really from is. military mm-hmm. to civilian life. Mm-hmm. And uh, Representative Blanco, I know you talked about. You know, there's uh, what a job posting or mm-hmm. a site yes. that basically puts it in military terms, so they know mm-hmm. what they're looking at and what how their skills can be applied.
0: Right. That was that was a bill that uh, we filed, and and you know, if you're in a 13 Bravo coming out of uh, the army and you don't know what you qualify for at a state agency, now uh, it's, requ- it's a requirement that the state lists yes. 13 Bravo. You, all right, you look at 13 Bravo. Oh, this, I, I qualify for these jobs. Making it seamless, making it easier, because the center's right. Uh, when we come out of the military, uh, you know, we're, 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 a lot of us don't have experience working in, in a professional arena in, in, in the civilian workforce. We don't know what we qualify for. All we know is that I know how to shoot straight and accurate, <laughs> right? Um, but you know, there are a lot of other things like leadership development, management, things that that you learn in the military that could be utilized in, in the civilian world. So we, uh, a lot of our bills are just lifting the barriers and the yes. restrictions that that help uh, make that transition easier.
2: I couldn't agree more. And that's, it's for those of you who don't know, because I didn't know at first, but it's a military occupation service code, and so that's what our veterans understand exactly what that is. So when that is partnered with the job opportunity, that transitional language or that
1: translational language, if you will,
2: helps to actually let them know what job's available.
1: Well and I mean covering veterans for or veterans issues for a number of years now, I hear a lot from veterans how grateful they are for what the Texas legislature has done in passing and enacting these different programs. But Obviously, not all veterans come back ready to be in the know. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Senator Rusty, having two sons, um, obviously they have a father in the know. But, I mean, how, how, do they, how does a veteran returning from, from deployment know the, all that Texas has to offer? I well, mean, is there, are there measures, in fact, to educate them?
3: It's gotten a lot better, I'm, I'm certain, than when, when I got out and probably when you all got out. Mm-hmm. But um, it's still difficult. I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, We talked about it a little bit. The Texas Veterans Commission, they do wonderful work, but they're overworked, and um, they have so many caseloads. Just two days ago, two days ago after we spoke, uh, my father finally got his disability rating from 1957. 60 years ago. I mean, he's been working on this. With the help of the Veterans Commission, I will add, he, he received the order, the ruling, two days ago, from 1957 and he's 83 years old think about how many veterans have died already they, mm-hmm. they you know they, they live to be 65 or 70 and they never get there and my father's relentless um, he never gave up but so but the other point is with the help of the Veterans Commission he was able to do that and we need to um, bring on more advocates mm-hmm. you know I try to add a couple to my session and you know that's a, a drop in the bucket and some of the opposition to, to what I was trying to do was, well, but that's the federal government's role. Okay, well, they're federal benefits. But they're, these are Texans. We need to help our, our own people um, access their benefits. That's why we have the Veterans Commission. So that, that's probably not the direct answer to your, your question, Alana, but that's one way, I think, of helping our veterans know what's out there and what benefits are out there and um, what opportunities exist.
2: And I, I think to his point, what the Texas Veterans Commission and what we did do last year for stories exactly like what Senator has said, had the strike force teams go out to help be the liaison and decrease backlogs if it's for health, mm-hmm. you know, appointments with the VA or whatever, and our veteran, our um, county veteran service officers, veteran county service officers, everyone, um, out there being the liaison
1: to try to help. Uh, get these issues resolved, mm-hmm. I know that uh, Senator uh, Representative Dale, you talked about the strike force teams. I know there's been some criticism of of the ones helping uh, veterans get appointments simply because it's hard to measure the success. Um, how do you do that? and I know a lot of the interim charges are looking at things that have already passed and seeing how effective they are, whether you throw money at them again this session, but How do you measure that, and and maybe how do you navigate that moving forward as far as the strike force teams and helping veterans at that level?
4: Yeah, well, as Senator Campbell said, you know, um, I think she had her numbers right. So In 2012, there was a backlog of 68,000 VA claims, and now they're down to 75,000. You can talk about the appeals when you get your chance because we were talking about that. But, you know, we have, unlike most other states, we actually have state employees that are out there in these VA clinics so we've got 150 employees that are state employees embedded in these VA clinics, and they actually handle 65 percent of the VA claims in the, in the state. And that brings in that's 200,000 claims that Texas manages on behalf of veterans with the VA. 3.5 billion in compensation a year, which is pretty tremendous. And uh, you know the veterans have a choice when they go into the clinic they can work with, you know depending who's there, the VA, they could work with the um, uh, American Legion, Disabled Veterans of America, Veteran Foreign War, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But most of them choose to work with the Texas advocates. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then there's a separate set of employees that does help cut through the bureaucracy. And they work not only with the veterans, but they also help doctors get paid. They work with the pharmacists as well. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, you know, it's a two-way system. You don't just want to get care to the veteran. You want to make sure doctors want to participate paid in the program and we know what challenge that a challenge that can be <laughs> and uh, yeah. if you get your doctors paid in a timely manner that's a big deal but no other state really does this kind of thing
1: Yeah helping right. the, the doctors get paid I, I was just in Corpus Christi and a lot of the, the private practice uh, physicians have gotten out of dealing with the VA because it's more than a year if they mm-hmm. ever get paid yeah so that's a huge thing that's to right grow. and even our active military that have tricare
2: the government you know they may they're promised once again. They're promised coverage for healthcare. They have Tricare, and the government pays so little that providers drop out of the market for being providing access for them. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's not just about trying to get them partnered up with a provider. The
1: government has got to pay for the service, Mm -hmm. or there's not going to be access. And access to mental health care is huge for the veteran community. Just Coming back you know, from what they've seen abroad, um, talk a little bit about what that system looks like in the state as far as the different agencies involved and, and how veterans are able to get access to care, especially we're such a big state, there's like rural pockets. I know telemedicine has been talked about as used in the National Guard and other uh, units, but how do you reach those people and make sure that they're addressed?
0: Well, I think one important way where we're reaching them, and it's an unfortunate way uh, that we're reaching them is through the veterans' courts. Uh, we're finding them when they're in trouble and it's too late, uh, which is not acceptable. Mm-hmm. We, we have to do more. And a lot of this, honestly, has to do with failure of the federal government. I mean, the VA has done um, as much as it can, but there are always failures uh, within the VA uh, no matter what administration comes in. So we need to take a, look, a hard look at the VA. Um, but what do we do as Texans? I mean, we're finding a lot of veterans that are self-medicating, uh, abusing alcohol mm-hmm. and prescript- prescription drugs to self-medicate to deal with the situations that they're dealing with. Uh, they end up in trouble, uh, and they end up in court. And we have a program, uh, it's called the Veterans Court, and I represent Farias uh, uh, worked very hard, uh, and, and my colleagues here worked very hard in, in previous sessions to make sure that there was funding uh, that goes to the governor's office to allocate it and, and as grants mm-hmm to these uh, uh, courts. Uh, There are several courts throughout the state, but not enough. 21,
1: I think I counted more. 26. 26? Right. Okay.
0: Right. And and so, you know, we're just scratching the surface. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, when the veteran comes in, the court uh, is a court that understands uh, the situation and try to rehabilitate the veteran instead of just, you know, throwing them behind bars and locking up the key. Um, lock, uh, throwing away the key. So uh, I think these are areas where we need to continue to fund. We should see a dedicated uh, funding stream yeah. to make sure that we capture them. We're seeing uh, a lot of veterans coming back home to Texas and, and, and making their home here, but this is a, a serious problem. So I think from the mental health side, this is a, a good way to catch them before their lives are uh, you know, in, in a bad situation moving forward. We can mm-hmm. capture them through there.
3: And if I can add to that, our Veterans Court in, in San Antonio in Bexar County has done a wonderful job. It, and it's limited, though, to misdemeanor offenses. And so if a veteran finds himself in, or herself in trouble at a felony level, they're not going to qualify for the Veterans Court. So I know our, our DA, our local DA, Nicola Hood, is looking for ways to try to expand that. Not for uh, you know the more serious offenses, of course, but the controlled substance offenses, et, et cetera. But I've seen it work, You know, I practice law in, in San Antonio and I've represented a number of veterans that get arrested for an offense and um, they have to qualify for veterans court. And a lot of times it's for um, uh, mental health reasons as well and they're looking for some help. And I will tell you that most of them are proud, I mean they're all proud, but they're too proud to admit, yes, I have a mental health problem, I have a mental health issue. Um, and I've stood right next to them and said, It's going to be okay. You, you know, you've got to tell the judge or the, mm-hmm. the prosecutor that you need some help. Mm-hmm. And, and once they make that first step, then you can see it mm-hmm. progress. But that, that I think, is a, at least what I've witnessed is the most difficult step for any veteran to say, Yes, I need some help. Mm-hmm. So, so
4: through the Senator? No. Through the um, Texan Veterans Commission, works with the Department of State Health Services and has a military. Um, veteran peer counseling program, peer-to-peer counseling, mm-hmm. and so there's 37 state employees that are out there in the field across Texas that work with uh, the faith community. They work with the jails mm-hmm. to uh, reach out to veterans that need this kind of um, care. And uh, you know, that's not a lot of people. I mean, mental health in general, there's a lot of challenges in Texas, yeah. no matter who you are, whether you're a veteran or a civilian. Um, Uh, accessing that care just because of limits on the system and insurance that doesn't pay for it and all that kind of stuff. But uh, we do have some state employees that are out there working in this area. And you know, it's not just on, this burden should not just be on the state. You know, There needs to be um, more involvement from the federal government as well in this area. But uh, again, it's something else that other states don't do. Exactly.
2: And um, to tag and support what they have said, and then we'll specifically go back to the mental health, but um, starting from where our veteran courts support our veterans. It's a, for those of you who don't know, it's a, it's a specialized court where veterans, as Senator Uresti was talking about, uh, when they qualify to be able to go through that court, it's an arduous process of being mentored and volunteers are helping and judging. And it's basically a customized program to help them through their addiction or their mental illness, whatever they do, and they contractually work along with the folks within the veteran treatment court. And what they're seeing even here in Travis County uh, over the past couple of years actual where recidivism, you know, re-offending in regular court is up to fifty it's 50% pretty much. And as time goes on, three, four years, it's even higher but with the veteran treatment courts the recidivism goes down and over about a 3 year period now the the chance that somebody's going to reoffend is less than a fourth you know they have success rates of about 85% i mean that helps the economy keeps keeps our veterans out of jail and just like he said you know throwing the key away so Veteran Courts is a very great initiative on the part of Texas. And then looking at the mental health specifically, other things that we've done through the TVC, they have a portal that it's, a, it's an app on the phone. And I was going to bring my phone, but my little girl's got it <laughs> over there. But it's just the Texas Veterans app, easy to load, and the home page gives you different choices just to go and look to help. You know, direct you to where you can get some answers for mental health or other resources available for veterans. And when we think about it, sometimes we are at our wits end because we can't get an answer. We don't have a way to connect up with someone who can help us with something and then just that can wear on you. Well, imagine everything that our veterans have and add some stresses like that. So the portal is very good to help uh, connect veterans up with the services and benefits that we have. Second, we sent 20 million more dollars out last session to partner with uh, a a private entity to get matching funds and our 20 will only be used if it's matched with other private dollars or philanthropic dollars to fill in the gaps for the mental health needs in local communities. So that is a big thing and then our veteran service courts, and then a thing that uh, we've touched on already was a new model that I think other states will emulate, and that's the military veteran peer-to-peer network Mm -hmm. that helps connect a veteran with another veteran, a colleague there. Mm -hmm. And and then there's the uh, Texas Veteran Plus Family Alliance program, which is part of the Mental health dollars that we put in to help fill the gap for local health care needs, mental health care needs for our veterans. Mm-hmm. So we see the need, and I think we're all on board most certainly with supporting that.
1: Well, in the peer to peer programs, I mean, across all boards, especially the military, I mean, they speak the same language, they've been there, and that adds to the success of those programs. Um, transitioning a little from veterans to active duty, we obviously have a number of military installations here in the state. Last session, uh, Governor Abbott really pushed uh, for funding for BRAC, uh, you know, that scoring process that we dread from the federal government that could close some of our military installations and lead to the death of the towns and those economies that they're in. Um, given that we're going into a quote unquote tight budget uh, session, will we see that money there again to make those areas attractive infrastructure should that process come down in the next two years while we're in the interim?
3: Well, what, what I'll say is in my district, and Senator Campbell and I share, kind of share Randolph Air Force Base, which is a huge Air Force Base for the state of Texas, but also have Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio, which is where all the Air Force cadets go and train. And then out in Del Rio, um, I have Laughlin Air Force Base, which, um, again, another uh, important Air Force Base. My understanding has more sorties than any other um, airport, uh, which is significant. And, so obviously they do a lot of training out there, so it's critical not only to my district but to Texas that we, we work with, with the, uh, the military installations and find you know, that additional money because that's, that's nothing in comparison to the economic impact that it's having um, across our state in, and at the same time uh, providing a service to the rest of the country. So I'm sure on an issue like that we'll find the money. That's, I don't think that's a, um, I mean that's, that's a bipartisan effort to get that done.
2: I agree 100%. When you look at, and BRAC stands for Base Realignment and Closure. And we are a big state with a big target on our back. 15 military installations brings in an economy of $150 billion. So when we talk about funding, what we're specifically talking about right now is something called DAG, which is a Defense Economic adjustment, adjustment Assistant Grant. Now, we put in $30 million, and I know the governor has asked for $30 million again. I agree wholeheartedly. I believe that that will be there
5: mm-hmm.
2: because our governor wants it. Our lieutenant governor most certainly wants it. I mean, look at us. We're, you know, different ideology on some things, but we're just right on target here. And it's a small amount to pay. For the big the multiplier that it is, the big economic and benefit uh, that it brings, so I believe we 'll have that and what do those dollars actually do? They shore up our installation, they help bring stronger defense if you will, to the mission of the base and the you know the vision and everything that we uh, That the base needs. Increase their military value. Increases the military value. And that's important
5: Mm -hmm. because
2: the instant the value of a base drops, the government could close it down. And we don't want that. Again, the economy, our people, our Texans. So I believe we will defend that. Yes.
0: Yeah, you look at the at our economy. Uh, oil and gas is the biggest, one of our biggest industries. The second largest is defense, and the third is agriculture. Uh, and to the senator's point, it's a one hundred and fifty billion dollar industry uh, or economic generator in our state. Mm-hmm. Um, diag is so important, uh, and and you can use diag inside the fence or outside the fence yeah, of an installation. And I, uh, you know, I can speak from El Paso. We've used uh, several million dollars for the K Bailey Hutchinson desalination plant to make sure that. Uh, wa- there's a, water, a sustainable water source for, for, uh, for BLIS. Uh, we, we've seen uh, the radar uh, equipment in Del Rio and, 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 and various uh, locations. It, it's just an important uh, piece to, to uh, incentivize big army, big navy, big air force when they're looking around the country and say, well, where do we cut? Um, and, and that's been uh, the discussion. We want to make sure that, and, and again, this is from the governor to the speaker to the lieutenant governor, we want to make sure that our state is the spot that, that, that these brass, these generals and admirals are looking and saying, let's go to Texas because they have a, 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 the maneuver space for these big tanks. Mm-hmm. They've got the airspace mm-hmm. to fly these sorties. Uh, they've got the airspace uh, to test missiles and, 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 and test air defense systems. So we've got to make sure that from an economic standpoint, uh, Texas stays on, on top of that list.
1: From the airspace uh, you know, component and you know, the military value as a whole, I know an issue that came up last session, there was a hearing recently in Wichita Falls talking about encroachments and just getting a bill passed to you know, provide a disclosure to you know, wind farms or developments to keep that airspace free around these bases. Um, do you foresee more political will? It, it died last time. I think it passed out of the Senate and died in the House or no, vice versa, but um, do you think that'll pass this time or, or, I mean, I'm sure it'll be filed again given the recent hearing?
4: Yeah, I, I mean, I don't have insight on whether or not the bill's going to pass, but I think it is a, a great example of how you could have these unintended consequences, right, where you say, okay, we're the number one wind state in the country, mm-hmm. and oh, by the way, it that interferes with radars on aircraft mm-hmm. and yes. on the ground, and, um, and I've... Seen the generals and admirals come in and say, "Hey, this is the problem for us. You know, we may not be able to work in Kingsville, for example, or other places because of this." And that's a real concern. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got energy needs, and there's only certain areas you can do that kind of energy. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, um, you know, we've got national defense issues that are real and uh, I think more important. So it's got to be addressed one way or another. And I kind of go back.
1: I'm going to just say we have about five minutes left of our discussion, and then we'll open it up to questions from the audience. So if Be thinking of those if you have any. I want to
3: go back real quick to what Representative Blanco talked about uh, with the economic impact, and I think it's important to note that if there's another BRAC, uh, round of of Mm -hmm. BRAC closings, that it's not just the military personnel that we lose, Mm -hmm. it's the civilian jobs Mm -hmm. as well. We saw that when Kelly Air Force Base closed uh, in San Antonio. I mean, that was a devastating hit that the the city took and a lot of civilian jobs as well. So I think that's important to note. Hundreds
1: Mm -hmm. of thousands, right? I mean, in support... Positions. It was, and I would
2: add, um, when we're looking at supporting our installations, as they both pointed out, uh, well, all three of them have pointed out regarding missions on our bases, especially looking at the sorties, the flights coming in and out, and the training. Think about it. One thing when when uh, Representative Dell was talking about energy, there's a push because of the wind to bring up wind farms and the wind turbines just real close to the end of the runways or close, you know, coming in on both ends of the runway or either end of the runway. But think about it. That not only is a height impediment when a, when a jet's trying to come in, but it also interrupts the radar. And this is an energy that is actually subsidized by the state. So think about that a minute. We subsidize an energy form and put it so close to a base that it risks—it makes our base vulnerable to closure. And when you look at the the number of workers, FTEs, full-time employees, or workers of, for the wind farms, you know you're looking at about fifteen thousand. Now, is that a number to joke about? No. But when you look at the bases, what they bring in, we're talking about eight hundred thousand. So why would we subsidize something that, when put in close proximity, actually threatens our base?
5: Mm-hmm.
2: So subsidies do cost the state, and it puts a big threat to to the um, mission, making it mission ready, and so does building close to it, lighting, and so. I do believe those issues will come up. I most certainly will be bringing up the issue regarding wind farms in close proximity to the runways. Mm-hmm. You know, his, you know, the installations he just talked about, those are, those are flight heavy. That's where the training comes. I just was down in Corpus at Kingsville Naval Air Station. Big threat right there, and we, you know, we have to be smart in energy definitely smart in subsidies. I mean, why would we support something that would risk uh, the mission of, an, of installations that bring in so many dollars and so many jobs?
1: On that note, we will conclude this portion of our conversation. Let's have a round of applause for our panelists, And now, does anyone have any questions? We'll bring around a mic, if you'd like to ask any of the panelists a question. Oh, this gentleman here.
3: Alana, could you ask the audience how many of them are veterans?
1: Yes. Yeah, how many are you? of you are veterans? Can you raise your hand? Okay. Thank you. Good yeah, thank you. And you know something that I think we
2: can all agree on, something I say every time I open our committee, there is no more honorable profession and no greater title of valor than to be a veteran. So it doesn't matter what you do, when you're a veteran, no one holds a higher title of valor than
1: you do. Thank you. Sir?
3: Yes, on on that note,
4: I uh, I have seven uncles who are veterans and my grandfather as well. And my daughter currently serves Air Force Intelligence right now as we speak. And um, I'm curious on the lack of physicians and the reimbursement rate. Is there any kind of legislation to up that reimbursement rate to get more physicians back in the mix, to get them help before it's way too late, before they start getting those felonies?
1: Are there any incentives that the legislature can put Mm -hmm. in place to incentivize either the VA to pay these physicians to increase the outside care or even inside care?
2: What's your name? John. John. Thank you. Thank you so much, John. That is a great question.
1: I'm a physician and I do the emergency
2: room so we see folks whether they have insurance or not. But for the other providers, I've seen so many of my friends say I I can't afford to see them. I don't know, I would I don't know of any legislation that we can do to help. Is there?
3: Well, there could be, I suppose, but it would, of course, cost money if you're going to help them with their reimbursement of their student loans, for example, or to stay in a certain location, geographical location that's underserved. You know, out in my district in West Texas, that's a great challenge, of course, and I think in your area, too. So, I mean, there's there are ways to do that, and and then there's the whole philosophy or philosophical difference as to whether or not that's state versus federal, who should be doing it. But nonetheless, I think we do have... a an obligation to step up and at least think about that idea, what we can do to help keep those doctors in place.
4: Yes, because those with disabilities have the same problem of uh, doctor positions not wanting to see us because Medicaid doesn't reimburse. It's just don't. It's, it you know, runs in the same thing. When these veterans come back, you need a lot more immediate help before it gets too late before these mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think that would be a huge climb, a way to get that reimbursement rate up or some kind of consider in some kind of legislation. Okay. I have a great question.
1: Suggestion. Anyone else over here? This gentleman? Well,
5: I meant the Vietnam veterans got the short change. I had two friends.
4: Yeah, I think when you hear about the number of military suicides that occur, veteran suicides on a daily basis, um, a lot of those are not necessarily recent veterans. It's not all, you know, folks from Afghanistan and Iraq, are Vietnam era uh, as well. And so you can't just have a focus on the most recent veterans. It's got to be all veterans that are out there because those issues, uh, you know, even my grandfather who was in World War II, he didn't, he never talked to my dad. About what happened in World War II, he started talking to me about it in the 1990s. He wasn't ready for decades to say anything. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think you're right. That's an area that needs to be emphasized. And there's a stigma. You know, I think the
0: uh, Senator had mentioned it, uh, that when he's representing these veterans in court, they don't want to step up and say, you know, I've got, an, I've got a bad problem. But all of us that have served, you know, it's bad to go to sick bay. <laughs> yeah. you, you, it's, you're seen as weak. You know, you, so, so what do you do? You, uh, some people will have a couple of beers, uh, or some people will go and see, seek help and then start abusing prescription drugs. Mm-hmm. There are different ways of, of, of coping, but I think internally in the military there is a stigma uh, that uh, they, they call them sick bay commandos, you know, because they, you know, a lot of times, and it's unfortunate. Um, but, that, you know, that there's a lot of things that we can do. I think as a state, we need to continue to fund mental health programs. We need to f- continue to fund these peer, uh, the peer programs, and making sure that our veterans courts so we capture those folks when they're in, a, in, in, their, in their lowest point. Thank
1: you. Any other up there? Hi, my name is Berkeley. I'm a senior here at UT, um, and I work in a congressional office here in Austin. And I do a lot of help with casework regarding the Department of Veterans Affairs. And um, Senator Uresti, you mentioned that your father, I believe, that it took him 60 years to get his benefits. Um, And when casework comes into our office, where my bosses basically tell me, make sure that you don't give them too high of expectations when it's regarding the VA, because we know that it takes so long. Mm -hmm. Um, So my question is, as representatives from Texas, do you think there's any way that you can help reform the VA? And if there's not, what advice would you give to the federal government in that regard?
3: Well, it's a it's a great question. Um, I don't think anybody in this room is is impressed with the VA uh, because of all the problems that they've had. You know, and there are a lot of good people that work there. Let's let's put that out there as well. But again, you know, at the state level, of course, it's a federal issue, and we're, we're limited. But we can help with through the Veterans Commission again by having the appropriate staff, the training, the, the assistance that they need, so that our veterans can be well represented. You know, and it was a claim. That you know, his my father's uh, advocate just never gave up on, and uh, it's a shame. And, and I, I read the ruling, and, the, and I'm a lawyer, and that ruling was complex. I had to go back and read it twice. I mean, it was about 20 pages, and and how in the world would a veteran, mm-hmm. he's not my father, dropped out of school in the sixth grade when his father died, you know, didn't have a high school diploma degree, but any other veteran going to understand that process, yeah. you know, and I helped them. And, I mean, I'm a lawyer, I'm a senator, and it was difficult. Um, so that's part of the problem. We need to make it a, a, a more effortless, a seamless process, and it's ridiculous that any veteran would have to wait almost 60 years mm-hmm. to get a disability that the judge said you were entitled to. Mm-hmm. So we just got to work together, and, and, and not, I'm not throwing stones, I guess the way I am, but
4: those knuckleheads over there got to fix it. Well, my understanding is that recently, I I believe it was approved, where if you have a certain wait time at a VA facility that you can, and it's a distance (laughs) as well, that you can go to a private facility, and get that taken care of I think is a very positive step, and it's one that uh, I'd like to see expanded where you've got more options that if you're a veteran and you can't be seen immediately that you should have the option to go to a private facility and the federal government should back it up and and pay for it. Mm -hmm.
1: We hear, um, though, from VA uh, offices or, or patients, uh, I, like I said, I was just down in Corpus, and unfortunately, they sometimes find a way around that to where they don't have to refer you out. Um, so, I mean, you know, it's on the books, but maybe it's not in practice in certain parts. So well, it's a matter of oversight, I guess. and
4: Well, accountability. That, that, <laughs> that's what I was going to say, Senator. It's accountability, it's mm-hmm. leadership, and making sure that you stay true to your mission of serving the veteran. Mm-hmm. And if you're doing something to get around something, that's gonna slow down something for a veteran, you don't belong there. Mm-hmm. And you need to go away. I will and say that's that, the leadership, that's true. Yeah.
0: I will say this. I did work in the VA for a short period of time, and there's a lot of retired military brass at the leadership level that from my perspective may be great leaders, but they don't know how to run a healthcare system. Mm-hmm. The VA is the second largest national healthcare system in the country. So if you know, that's fine if you're uh, running a carrier group, but that's different from healthcare delivery. Uh, that's different from you know being a tank commander uh, it, it's, it's a different uh, field so I think our country needs to look at how much uh, how many military officers retired military officers are going to work and manage the VA when we should be looking and recruiting uh, health care professionals into the system
2: so and mm-hmm. I couldn't I couldn't agree more representative Blanco and then representative Dale all three of you made such great point that Choice Act was meant to, as Representative Dale was talking about, to help our veterans that can't get to the VA in a timely fashion that their, their diagnosis or their symptom would dictate. But what happened, so it gives them the a, a accessibility or the right to go to a doctor close to where they live. But the Choice Act is so filled, because it's the federal government, is so filled with bureaucracy that they can't seem to get the dots connected from the bureaucracy of the Choice Act down here to the providers. So, to John's point, the providers don't get paid enough, don't get paid in a timely fashion. So, you can say, you can go see a doctor, you have the choice because you've jumped through these hoops. But then it's like, well, nobody will see me
1: mm-hmm. because the
2: government is not being accountable mm-hmm. and paying for it. Right. So that is a problem. I mean, I personally, personally, I'd like to scrap the whole government socialized medicine system that is an experiment, it seems like, on our veterans and give them a health care ID card to let them go to the doctor of their choice, hospital of their choice, when they need to go Mm -hmm. and the government pay a good price for it, we would still, I believe, come out cheaper than the dollars we're putting in these bureaucratic um, military previous leaders on the battlefield. I mean, you really said it right, Representative Blanco, but I think we'd come out cheaper than having this bureaucracy heavy at the top, Mm
1: -hmm. pink
2: palaces, and just get in to let private business where there's competition and patients can choose, veterans can choose where they wanna
1: go. In talking with veterans, it's exhausting sometimes listening to how much they have to go through to get care. I I liken it to kind of a bad HMO to where they need a referral for everything to do every step of the process.
4: Well, to the Senator's point, I mean, I'm old enough to remember the post-Vietnam era VA and I see very little differences in how poorly it was run then as to today. We've got to learn from these terrible lessons And it's got to be streamlined, it's got to be more efficient, and it's just, just tragic.
5: Under and Obamacare. Same thing.
2: Well, and of course, details would have to be worked out. What I would like to see is veterans have a choice, and it not necessarily go through an insurance company. The government pays the bill, and there's not a lengthy insurance forms they have to fill out. Yeah. Because yeah. private hospitals and doctors they know how to fill out those forms, but bill the government, the government pays it back. Mm -hmm. And the government pays at a market price, not a sub-market price. Because otherwise, they can't afford to keep it up. I mean, when you look at the government insurance, if you will, you know, they don't pay enough in even Medicare, Medicaid. I mean, even pep smears, for instance, five dollars. But a doctor has to block out time and make sure, you know, clinically, it's not just somebody doing a swab. It's, and it's time, but yet $5. What, what, private, what provider can keep an office open with that? So the government has to step up before anything like that could happen. The government would have to step up to pay for the benefits that
1: they have promised. I'm not sure, do we have any time? Yeah, two, minutes. two minutes. Any <laughs> other questions so before we go. wrap up? You sound like a oh, Right panel. over
5: here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I just want to say thanks for your bipartisan support. I've been on the front line of that. And you actually added mental health advisors uh, at the National Guard level last session, so thanks for that. Um, but I mentioned uh, several times you mentioned both uh, mental health and Hazelwood. You talk active duty, but active duty service, as the legislature defined it, doesn't include the National Guard service and doesn't include state active duty service. So, for instance, the troops that have been serving on the border for the last year, when they get done, they will not qualify for. Uh, if you serve in the National Guard for 20 years and you don't have Title 10 federal service, you do not qualify for So, yet it's a state program, but the state troops, state militia, don't qualify.
2: Well, I know that there is a National Guard grant that is out there that is, is, you know, if you qualify for it through the State Guard, you get that. I've said National Guard. It's a State Guard. And, you know, there's still more need than they have dollars. I think they were authorized uh, $1.5 per year for that program last time. And I know the adjutant is going to ask for more dollars <coughs> for that. I don't know what can y'all <coughs> add.
0: I think we should fund it. I think we should. Look, my, my, grandfa- my, my grandmother's brother, Raul Caracena, sergeant, Texas National Guard, Fought in the Battle of Rapido River in World War II, captured by the Nazis and was in a POW camp. He came back home. He didn't have, he had GI Bill. Uh, that's about all he had. But we shouldn't be trading our National Guard any different from active duty, uh, because many times you all are the first ones sent out to combat uh, before anyone else. Uh, that's kind of the philosophy, right? You, you, you don't send out your regulars first. Yeah, you send out your your a lot of the reservists. So from my perspective, I think that we should change. No, we should keep you all in the same same qualifications as, as everyone else. To a good well, point.
3: Sir,
5: to that point, that federal troop would get it. If you went and you right. just went to hurricanes, you just went to fires, you wouldn't get it. So right. I think we have a segment of the population that's doing great service and doing some very honorable work that just doesn't qualify based on current, the way we're reading the current standard of action. Service is generally. service
0: from my perspective. And I think if you serve in uniform and you're in dangerous situations and you're rescuing people from rivers and, and, and uh, debris, uh, you should be entitled to it because there's no, you know, one day you're you're rescuing someone from a flood the next day you're in Afghanistan you know not literally but you know months months yeah. apart. Yeah. True. Yeah. True. True. Thank you. It's an important point.
1: Thank you. We'll have to leave it there. Please another applause for our panelists. Thank you very much.